scripture reading for the message this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Good morning. We're going to begin. Um, I didn't give you a chance to respond. Good morning. We're going to begin uh, a little mini series on the book of Colossians. Pastor Charlie's going to be out of the pulpit for the month of August, and I thought I'd just um, use the four weeks that I have to hopefully cover as best as we can the book of Colossians. So four weeks, four chapters. Hopefully we can get that done. Obviously there's going to be much, much that uh, won't be able to touch on and cover but hopefully we can come away with a good sense of what this book is about and how it relates to our lives. So let me pray for us, and we'll get busy. Our Father, thank you so much for um, just the, the wonderful time, Lord God, to bask in the glory of your presence through singing songs of worship to you. Thank you for quieting at least my heart. I pray that... You have quieted and stilled the hearts of your people so that they can receive the word of God, Lord, as it's preached to them. I pray, Father, that you would help me this morning as I stand here, Lord, help me to know my place as a simple servant, a messenger, Lord God, to bring good news. Um, I didn't write this passage. I didn't write this book. Um, I wasn't the one who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to Put it in the canon of Scripture, Lord God. So help me to understand, Father, that um, your word is authoritative, that your word is sufficient, your word is enough for us. Help us to see you through your word as you reveal yourself to us. I pray, Lord God, that we would make sense of what you are saying and how this relates to our lives. So we ask, God, that you would be here this morning and that you would direct our steps. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. So let me introduce the book of Colossians to you, just an overview. The occasion uh, for which Paul is writing has to do with false teachers that have crept into the church. So even though the letter of Colossians doesn't begin um, in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, doesn't begin in chapter 2, 16, actually consulted numerous commentaries, and the scholars are agreed. It doesn't begin there. It begins at 1-1, at believe it or not. Um, scholars seem to argue about a number of different things, so <laughs> it doesn't seem like too much out of the realm of possibility that they would argue about something like this. So it doesn't begin in chapter 2, verses 16, but that is where we get the clearest picture of why Paul writes to the believers at Colossae. Colossae was a cosmopolitan city. It was in the Lyca Valley. 
And um, when, we see, when, we see these cha- when we see chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, oh, I'm sorry, I said that already, um, it gives us a good picture of uh, why he's writing. Colossae is a city in the Lyca Valley. There's one, of, uh, there's one of three cities there. Laodicea and Hierapolis were other cities in that, in that area. And even though Colossae was neither the biggest city nor the most important, here we are 2,000 years later, um, reading this letter, and really it has loads and loads of relevance for the church today um, in our scenario, in our cultural situation. Paul didn't directly plant the church at Colossae. He didn't plant the Colossian church. From Ephesus, he trained a man named Epaphras um, to do church planting and to do church ministry. He uh, discipled him as a pastor. And Epaphras left Paul and he went off to the city of Colossae and he planted the church. In fact, I don't think Paul um, has ever, ever, at least not until this point, had ever visited the church at Colossae um, in, in person. Um, the church was going well enough until they hit a point where um, some false teachers had infiltrated the church and false teaching, false and deceptive enslaving doctrine began, began to creep in to the collective thought among the believers. So Epaphras didn't quite know what to do about the situation that was on hand. So what he did is he went over to Rome to visit Paul, who we believe was in prison at the time. And there's Epaphras seeking church planting counsel and pastoral coaching while Paul is on his visitation hours in prison. I imagine that's somehow how it worked. I don't know the details on that, but it's fascinating how Paul says the gospel is not in chains. Um, even, eventually, he writes the letter to the Colossian believers, and it wasn't even Epaphras who went back to deliver the letter. It was a man by the name of Tychicus. You guys might have recognized that name. He delivered the letter to the church, and Epaphras stayed a little while longer with Paul in Rome just to audit some really great, great classes in church planting and church uh, and, and systematic theology from the Apostle Paul. So Epaphras stayed back with Paul just to fill his tank up a little bit to get ready to go back and minister to the people in Colossae. There's some discussions and debate among the scholars as to what the exact specifications of what these false teachers were actually teaching. We'll get into it a little bit today, and we'll get into it much more next week. It is certain that it was a syncretizing of Christian belief with some Judaism and some pagan religions such as mysticism, which was also going around the city of Colossae at the time. So let me point out that pluralism is not syncretism. I want to distinguish these two terms. Pluralism is the coexistence of many different religions and forms of thought within a society. Um, Syncretism is the melding and the merging of different religious beliefs and uh, systems of thought into one. So pluralism is not syncretism. It's not a sin to, be, to live in a pluralistic society. Our church is planted in its pluralistic society. Uh, America is becoming increasingly pluralistic, and perhaps this is even a good opportunity for the church to witness to uh, the people around us. So it's not a sin. It's not a problem for us to be in a pluralistic society, but it is a sin, and it is a major problem to become syncretistic, which would meld Christian beliefs with some new-agey secular humanism of this big kind of this conglomeration and it's kind of this Christian kind of like religion belief. That's a problem. 
And, and, and Paul, if we can gain anything from here, it's the purity of doctrine that's so important. What we believe is so important. It's ultimately important for the direction and for our connection with the living God. So syncretism is a problem that was going on in Colossae. Paul does anything in his power to make sure that the gospel would be purified, that it would remain pure. Um, So without further ado, let's just read Colossians 2, 16 through 23 to get a little bit of of an idea of what kind of things were going on. Therefore, Paul writes, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you are still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And like I said, next week we're going to dive into these passages a little bit more and press into what they mean. Today I just want to give us an overview and take away some big kind of ticket items that will help us understand the background of the book. So there's a couple of things um, that uh, we, can, we can kind of deduce from just these passages right off the bat. First of all, there were, broadly speaking, um, this uh, seduction from, uh, that was going on in the Colossian church to believe um, that they could have a fuller religious experience and to uh, kind of experience this deeper kind of connection with God, that they could experience a mysterious, this kind of mis- mystery, this mysterious freedom and find protection from evil powers, if only they kept some certain rules and laws and they did it a certain way. So that was kind of the background of what's going on. Another thing is that Gnosticism kind of started to creep into the church. Some of you might be familiar with this term. Most of you probably aren't. The word here is gnosis, which means knowledge. The Gnostics believed the physical world was evil and corrupted, and they taught that knowledge came from some kind of mystical experience rather than by intellectual exercise. So the knowledge we're talking about is not the kind of knowledge that you gain from reading you know, textbooks or, or the Bible and making observations. We're talking about knowledge that is kind of mystical in nature. You kind of have this religious experience if you do the right chants and so on and so forth. If you worship the right angel or whatever it might be, you might achieve this kind of knowledge, this mystery salvation. They taught that salvation was not by faith in the actual teachings of the scriptures, but they taught that it was by gaining this mysterious mystical wisdom or understanding. So in the church, this spiritual aristocracy started to form. It started to rise up. They, uh, meaning that uh, those who had achieved this knowledge were ranked higher 
And they became as kind of the spiritual elites to which those who hadn't entered into this were kind of living to please them in a sense. And that the, that the, the spiritual elites were kind of given the right to pass judgment on them. Oh, you haven't attained to this knowledge yet. You're not doing all the right things. You, you haven't kept this law and you haven't done that and so on and so forth. And there's judgment being passed, and there's disqualification that's going on. That's why he says, let no one disqualify you. And worst of all, Jesus was not rejected, actually, um, which actually probably would have made the problem easier to deal with. But it became increasingly slippery with the fact that he wasn't rejected. He was actually accepted but he was accepted among many other gods and many other ways that you can experience salvation. So he was not rejected, but he was dethroned. He was demoted. He wasn't worshipped as preeminent, but he was worshipped as one of many gods. He had a place, but not the place. The believers at Colossae were led to believe that they needed to supplement their faith, faith with the Jesus plus kind of religion. Jesus plus something else. They needed to do more to practice in addition to believing in Christ if they're really going to experience God and come to this mystery salvation. So that's kind of the background. Hopefully that's helpful for us and the foundation that will help us to make sense of the letter. Now I want to go through a couple of the passages in the book of Colossians and hopefully you'll see by some of the language that Paul uses throughout the book how he's addressing these particular issues in the life of the church. 115. I wish I could really press into this, uh, this portion of Scripture a little bit more. I chose not to, but it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This would have been a problem for them to believe in Gnosticism, who believed that the, that the physical world was corrupted and evil. When God says, when the Bible says to us at this point that Jesus was the one through whom all creation exists, this would have been hard for them to understand because by their definition, by their false teaching as it was, crept in, as it was creeping in, the evil world was corrupted. We have to escape the, the, or the physical world was corrupted. We have to escape the physical world into the, kind of the spiritual, mystical world is what they were thinking. And the reality is, God created the world through Christ. There's a personal nature to the creation that we see around us. The reason why we as human beings can relate to creation, the reason why we can look at it is because it is embodied in wisdom. The very wisdom of God is implicated in the trees that we see in the skies that we see. And the reason why we relate to it as people is because it's made through a person, through Christ isn't that amazing that the creation around us can actually relay to us the existence and the glory of God? The heavens declare the glory of God. It says in verse 119 and 2.9 that for in him, Jesus, in him, the whole fullness, do you see that word full? They were looking for this like fuller religion, this religious experience. In him, the fullness of God was dwelling bodily. Um, in verses, let's see here, 127 through 28, Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. He calls salvation a mystery, for it is. But the mystery is unlocked in Christ, and that's the mystery. Christ in you. 
the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Why does Jesus get proclaimed? He's not just one God. He is the God. And in him, you can unlock all the mystery of salvation and have the fullest experience that you could possibly have with the living God. It says that he's warning everyone to teach and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, this one is loaded with this kind of language where it says, Paul's praying that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be knit together in love to reach the riches of the full assurance. He wants them to have full assurance because there are people disqualifying them on the wrong basis, that you would have full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there is not anything that you have to escape from what God has revealed through Jesus himself. Everything is found there in Christ. Paul connects these issues to the gospel by saying, the mystery that you are trying to unlock, what is it? It is the wisdom that you're trying to attain, what is it? And the understanding that you're trying to reach is all wrapped up in this man, Jesus Christ. It's in him. Jesus isn't a God, he is the God in whom we can have the fullest, in whom we can have the deepest, in whom we can have the closest experience with God that is possible. Therefore, him we proclaim. Jesus is the center, he is the culmination, he's the pinnacle of the proclamation of the gospel. And in 2, 6, and 7, Paul says, As you have received Christ, so walk in him. Let's go to chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 now. The nature of the wording of Paul's prayer will sound familiar to us again. Let's read it. And so, this is Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. From the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Why give thanks? Because he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so let me make a couple of points. There's four points that I want to make, and there's so much in this passage that I'm going to have to skip over. But let me just start with this. It is God the Father who qualifies his saints. You could say, well, the title of your sermon is Jesus Qualifies. Yeah, I I realize that. But it's through Christ that we are qualified on the basis of his work. We are not qualified or disqualified because we kept the law or we didn't keep the law. We know we did not keep the law. And we are qualified. Why? Because God the Father said we are qualified on the basis of the work of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. So in other words, if you are qualified to stand in the presence of God, not because you have kept some law, 
You're qualified not because you did or didn't keep the law. It's because Jesus kept the law on your behalf. And God now sees your faith in Christ and he qualifies you to stand in the presence of the living God. It is God who delivered you from darkness. It is God who has transferred you into his kingdom. And it is God who qualifies you through Christ to stand in his very presence. Now here's the mystery. Christ died for sinners, and by faith in him and obedience to him, we gain access into the presence of the living God where we live for him and we come to know him even more. I'm going to suggest that we technically, in a technical sense, we can't actually get closer to God as a Christian. If you are in Christ, positionally, you cannot get closer to God. What do I mean by that? You're already qualified to be in his presence. You can't improve on that. We can't actually get closer to the living God. We're already as close as we could possibly need to be in Christ positionally because we're qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God is the one who qualifies us. Nobody can possibly disqualify us because of either things that we're doing or not doing in the life of, our, of the church. I'm going to add to that in just a minute. But the second point that I want to make is that Paul prays that believers would come to a knowledge of God's will. Now, I want to press into this a little bit more and how this really speaks and addresses the, the, the kind of intimacy that Paul envisions his people having based on the finished work of, of Christ. So Paul prays that believers would come to a knowledge of God's will. This assumes that knowing the will of God is actually possible. Knowing the character of God, knowing the will of God is actually knowable. We can know these things. So what I said just a minute ago was that positionally we can't actually get closer to God. But we can do is we can grow in the knowledge of God. And Paul actually, the Bible actually commands us to increase in the knowledge of God. That we would grow in our understanding of God. So we can't actually improve. And I know maybe by the, you know, this is a bit of a technicality here. The way that we talk about being closer to God means that we're actually pressing in, walking closer, fighting sin, things like that. And if that's what we're talking about, then agreed. Yeah, we can, we can get closer to God. But what Paul is actually commanding his people to do is to increase in the knowledge of God. Now, this kind of flies in the face of a lot of even Christianity in America that wants to separate experience with God with knowledge and doctrine. Oh, that's boring. It divides. This is, you know, the experience. Paul calls us, Scripture calls us, grow in the knowledge of God, knowledge of the will of God. So positionally, we are as close to God as we could possibly get. We're accepted. We're in Christ. We are qualified to stand in the presence of God. Now know him more, more, more. To know the will of God is to know the very mind of God. Do you see how intimate this is? Brothers and sisters, do you see the intimacy here? To know the will of God is to know what's going on in his very mind. And to share minds, to share mindset... This is as close as you could possibly get. This is intimacy that Paul has in mind here. 
I can tell you a story. This is a little funny. One time, a long time ago, I was playing the dreaded game of Pictionary. Has anybody played Pictionary before? Okay, I'll pray for you. Get you on the prayer chain. I, you know, okay, so the situation, <laughs> the, the situation was um, myself and I was with my wife at the time. I think we were newly married, and she has two sisters, and they're playing on a team, guys against gals, and um, uh, my brother-in-law and then Karen's dad were on a team. So three on three, guys versus gals, big mistake right there when you're playing Pictionary. And the, the, the title or the word that we had to draw, and it was like one of those all-play things where you're going at the same time. So it's a race, and it was like Slovakia or something, right? So we had to draw a picture of Slovakia. Who knows what Slovakia looks like, by the way? Um, so I'm thinking this logical, break it down. I'm going to draw a picture of the globe, you know, and then I'm going to basically put it into Eastern Europe, and put a box there, and then hopefully um, one of the, the guys on my team would actually come across one of those countries and, and shout it out, right? So there we go. I'm doing this logical thing, this breakdown. Karen takes a very different approach. She was the one who was drawing. And she basically drew like what looked to be a circle as she would be riding on a bus in a third world country. Um, it was like this jagged circle. And um, her technique was essentially pointing at that and going like this. And then pretty soon, without any time hardly at all elapsing, somebody shouted out, Slovakia! Right? And I hadn't even drawn, like, Asia yet. <laughs> and I'm just looking at this thinking, how did, you, how did you do that? How did you guys come up with Slovakia? And I, I vowed at that moment, I was like, this is, this is you know, unless I, I you know, I'm never going to play Pictionary again with a group of guys, and I refuse to play with females present, because... <laughs> They basically share the same mind, right? And uh, there's no chance of winning. So that might have been the very last game of Pictionary I've ever played <laughs> in my life. And you know what? I'm totally okay with that. I have zero sadness over that. But anyway, the, the illustration here, the point of it is, they're sisters. They know each other. They're sharing the same brain. All she had to do was draw this crooked circle, and they got Slovakia out of it. She went like this. Uh-huh. <laughs> so my point here is the intimacy connects to, like, sharing minds. And when we think about what Paul is talking about here in terms of, you want to experience God, here's what you do. You know him. You stand in his presence qualified with the assurance that you know him and that nobody's going to disqualify you and you get to know him more on that basis. You get to know more and more of the mind of God. And then he says, third point, believers are to come to a knowledge of God's will. They share in the mind of God. And then he talks about this sharing so intimately that you share in the mind of God so intimately that it begins to shape the way that you live. Guys, this is, this is amazing. That God would actually, His will, that we would come to know His will, and that come to know His mind so much that we now are living it. Have you guys ever heard that when you have to teach a subject, you, you become the one who learns the most of it? Right? You learn that subject better than anybody else in that classroom because you have to teach it. 
Well, it's a similar idea here. It's a similar dynamic, I would say, that when you live something is when you truly know something. Would you guys agree with that? You really know something when you live it, when you apply it to your life. I can read about a car being reliable, right? And I would have a measure of understanding that, oh yeah, this car is reliable. Or I can put 244,000 miles on it and I know this car is reliable. I have an emotional connection. I might even give it a name. This thing has really served me well. It's been there for me. It's been there in the trenches. I know this car is reliable. There's a different level of understanding at that point. Is there not? And when, when, when God envisions for his people, not only that we would come to a knowledge of his will, but that we would practice it, that it would take over and shape the way that we live, what he intends is that he wants us to know this at a deep, deep, intimate level. And to know him even at a deeper level, with more intimacy. Have you ever thought about keeping the commands of God, not in terms of, oh, I must keep the commands of God, but as an invitation to intimacy with God, to really know his character, to know his mind, and to know his will, to know it even more fully? So I invite us to that. And then what he talks about, here's another thing, another implication of that. He wants us to bear fruit, that we would know the mind of God, that we would actually do the mind of God in our lives and know it at that level. But then there's another implication for it, that we would bear fruit. Well, where would we start bearing fruit? In the church and then into the world. So what he has in mind here is that when you do the will of God, the people around you are seeing the will of God being manifest through you. They see the character of God in you and through you. Rather than divisions forming in the church, oh, you're not in, you didn't achieve this salvation. No, there's a celebration of salvation in the church when we bear fruit. You guys see what I'm saying here? When we do the will of God, when we bear fruit in the life of the church, it's through serving one another. It's by doing the works of God. So somebody could actually come to see God more fully, that they could see him more clearly because of how it's manifest in your life. This is fascinating. So not only is it not disunifying, it is incredibly unifying to the life of the church that what he envisions is that the the character of God is taking root in the life of God's people. So I mentioned that Paul borrows language from relevant issues within the church. But let me make the case that Paul is also borrowing language from the Old Testament. Um, There's two main parts of the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament. This doesn't mean that one is better than the other or that one is relevant and the other is not relevant anymore. The basic difference is that the Old Testament tells God's people about a Savior, Jesus, who was going to one day come to the earth and save his people from their sins. And the New Testament is written after that period and the implications of Jesus arriving on the earth. Isaiah prophesied nearly 700 years prior to when Jesus came to the earth. And this is what he said. Look at the language. I put this up here. Isaiah 11.2. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its, his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. You see the similarity there. You see that in 11, Isaiah 11, 2, it's pointing us forward to the man, Jesus Christ. And here's, here's the point I want to make. I hope you can follow me here. Jesus is the one who would bear fruit. Jesus is the one who is filled with the wisdom of God, filled with the understanding and the knowledge of God. The right fulfillment of Isaiah 11.2 is in Christ. It looks as if Paul, though, here's what's fascinating about this, goes a step further. He says, yes, the fulfillment is, is in Christ, but he takes it a step further, and he applies it not just to Jesus, but to those people who believe in Jesus, right? To which Jesus is the head. So here's what Greg Beal, so basically what it's saying is, Isaiah 11.2 is looking forward to this man who's going to be filled with the wisdom and the knowledge of God, this man who's going to bear fruit perfectly. That's Christ. But then he takes it a step further and says, you know what, in Christ, your head, we also want you, the church, to bear fruit just like Jesus did. We bear fruit in, in knowing and coming to a, an understanding of God. So he applies it to Jesus, but also to the church at large. So what he's saying here is now all those in Christ have, this is Greg Beale saying, now all those in Christ have, quote, wisdom and spiritual understanding in Christ needed to walk worthy, or to walk worthily of the Lord. So how do we come to this knowledge? How do we come to spiritual understanding? How can we walk worthily of the Lord? Ultimately, to, to bear fruit in every good work. Um, let me just read the quote here. All those in Christ have wisdom and spiritual understanding needed to walk worthily of the Lord and to bear fruit in every good work in the new creation. The Colossian believers can grow in these attributes only as they continue to hear God's word of truth. So basically, what this is saying is that this passage was applied and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, but he's also applying it to the church as well, which means that what Paul sees is that Christ is in you. And this is what he says in, in uh, chapter 1, right? The mystery is Christ in you. Do you see the intimacy? This is what I'm pointing at. Do you see the intimacy that Paul is pointing to here? What he's saying is that Jesus is ultimately the man who bore fruit, who walked in the wisdom and the understanding of God. But now this gets applied further to the life of the church. How does it get, get applied to the church? Because we are in Christ. So therefore, as it's true for Jesus, as he is our head, it's also becoming true now of us as well, as we are in him. So this is why Paul says, don't, don't give in to these laws. Don't give in to these commands. Let no one disqualify you. You are qualified to stand in the presence of God through the work of Jesus. And now, in addition to that, you grow in the knowledge of God, you walk in a manner worthy, 
um, and you come to a spiritual understanding and knowledge of the living God through Christ. So I give you, I submit that to you, and I hope, I hope as you wrestle with that, that that would make some sense to you, that that would continue on to, to make sense for, for you. I'm judging by some of the looks on your faces that maybe you're not connecting, but, um, but um, as, as Christ is the fulfillment of uh, Isaiah 11:2, Paul goes a step further and says, no, actually this is true of the church as well. And he's applying the finished work of Christ to the believers. That we would be like him and that we would bear fruit through him. And that the intimacy of Christ being in us. So in a sense, he's not side by side, but he's actually living his life in and through his people. Maybe another way to put it is, um, you actually don't bear fruit. You don't bear a single piece of fruit on your own. Do you know how you bear fruit? Jesus, the sap flowing through your body, flowing through your being. And it's Jesus' life lived through you that now pops out the fruit of joy and thankfulness, the fruit of service. It's not you. You're not the source of the fruit. Jesus is the source of the fruit in you. So as Jesus is envisioned as this person that's going to come filled with the knowledge and the understanding of God, filled with bearing fruit in the living God, now he lives his life through his people, and we don't actually bear fruit of our own accord. We bear fruit as Christ is flowing through us. How's that for intimacy there? How's that for deeper spiritual, more full connection? How about that? It's quite amazing. So to wrap up, um, if you don't know God, if you're not in a position where you put your faith in Christ, um, if you consider yourself an unbeliever, I would invite you to press into what the scripture actually says about God. Do you actually have a real working knowledge of who God is, or is it just a kind of a hand-me-down kind of a cultural spin on their perceptions of who God actually is. I read this one stat that said 9 out of 10 homes in America houses a Bible. But how many of those people do you think are really actually pressing into understanding what does the Bible actually say about God and who he is and what his will is? And I invite you, if you're in that boat, if you're just kind of floating around, if you're kind of just like sinking your teeth into just some knowledge that you kind of just gathered, just gleaned um, as a kind of a hand-me-down that's a spin-off of some cultural kind of whatever, I'd encourage you to really press in and say, I, I want to know what the Bible actually says about God. Press in and maybe uh, um, ask myself or one of the pastors or somebody else that looks like they are a mature believer that understands the Bible and says, will you help me read the Bible? Because that's the other thing, if they do press into the Bible, if you're in that position, it's a big book. I remember the first time I opened up the Bible and I thought, yeah, well, maybe another day. You, I mean, it's, it's a lot to understand, isn't it? So I'd invite you, if you really don't know what the Bible says, if what, what, what's revealed about the living God, find somebody to walk you through. Ask them, would you read the Bible with me? Or if you are a believer who knows the Bible well, find an unbeliever and say, do you want to read the Bible together? Because we want to know God based on how he has revealed himself. 
And you know what? There's so many different ways that we could apply this passage, perhaps to believers as well. But let me just, let me, um, let me recommend this one to us. Uh, I want to press against, I want to press against just our, our cultural tendency and our desire to lean towards experiences. Our church, if you think about it, it's like, technically speaking, um, you know, when you look at really like modern church planting trends, our church should just not experience the, the fullness of God in any way because we don't have a fog machine, we don't have lights, we don't have anybody with a visible tattoo. And notice how I said visible, right? We don't do any of the things that kind of make this kind of experience type thing going on. We don't sing songs where the songwriter has uh, worn out the copy-paste function on their, you know, God is so amazing, that's good. Copy-paste, 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 copy-paste. Sing that for 15 minutes. Let's experience God. Now, I'm not against like having experiences of God. But what he's saying here is this is kind of the meat and potatoes of Christian life, knowing that you are in Christ and coming to a deeper knowledge, studying the Scriptures. And if maybe studying isn't your can of uh, whatever, uh, I don't know how the saying goes, if that's not your cup of tea, that's it. Find somebody, find somebody. Hey, would you, would you help me? Would you study? Seek fellowship, community groups. These are different areas where we can come to a different or a better understanding, a deeper knowledge of what God has revealed of himself in his word. And then do the will of God. Do it. Put it into practice. Implement it. And trust that this is the way that you're going to know God. And you don't have to add anything to it. You don't have to subtract anything from it. It also talks about endurance. That God would fill us with endurance. Press on, believer. Because there are so many different cultural ways that we are tempted to syncretize. There's so many different obstacles and oppositions to the Christian faith. This is why Paul appeals and he prays for, for endurance. And then he also talks about giving thanks. Here's the thing. Are you guys disciplined? Am I disciplined in giving thanks to God, the Father? Not when I feel like giving thanks. I'm feeling thankful today, so I'll give thanks. No, there's a discipline of giving thanks I would submit to you. Why? It's based on the knowledge that God has transferred you from the domain of darkness. It's a big one. It's a biggie. Might want to hang on to that one. And then there's, he's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Another biggie. And nobody can take that away from you. Nobody. It's unshakable. It's in the books. It's locked in. Yesterday, I was at this, long story short, it was a what, $1.5 million mansion, 7,000 square feet on five acres, pool in the back, party. It was wonderful. And I'm thinking, I can't believe how different some people's lifestyles are. I mean, mine is kind of close in the sense that there was grass on the, on the ground. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, that's where the similarities ended. Um, but uh, 
And I thought, you know what? On the new earth, we'll have all this and more. We'll have everything to our heart's content. And this isn't to feed into our idolatries of mansions and whatnot. But we have an inheritance that will far exceed a $1.5 million mansion. Amen? Amen? So do we have things to be thankful for? Yes. We're giving thanks to God for the big, awesome realities in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I, I pray, Lord, in light of this, knowing that we have things to be thankful for, but yet there's still real suffering and real obstacles that we face, I ask God that you would help to apply this with your spirit, that we would have grace in doing so. And I pray for those who are trying as as hard as they can to give thanks for their circumstance and how difficult that is. By your spirit, through the work of Christ, may you bear that fruit in us. And may we know you, God, knowing that we are positionally as close to you as possible that we could possibly be. Father, may we know you deeper and deeper. May we know you more fully. May we come to love you more joyously. May we be more assured of the salvation that is ours in Christ. May we bank on the fact that we are qualified, not on our good or our bad, but on the fact that Christ was only good, never bad. So we thank you for that. I pray that you would apply this sermon rightly to your people. If there's anything that was confusing or if there's anything that needs to kind of fall away from us, Lord, I just pray it would. I pray that what you would have stick with our hearts would stick. I pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.